0: Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Brian. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Brian. Before I get wound up, I'd like to thank the committee for having me, and Liz for giving me a phone call, and uh, Georgine for picking me up at the airport. And I'd like to thank the cult, as Marty says, Liz, Sandy, Bette, and Carol. They took me under their wing this weekend. I've had a great time. And I would also like to take this opportunity to thank Dick Martin, Fifteen years ago, uh, Dick was having the uh, the corn huskers, and he needed to speak, and he was talking to a friend of mine, and he suggested he call New York and bring this guy out and Dick on the flyer, he called me up, and I came out, and the rest is my personal aA history. I don't know how many times I've crisscrossed the United States since as a direct result of Dick Martin, and I like to publicly thank him, thank you, Dick. I come from New York, and ladies and gentlemen, I don't remember the first time I picked up a drink, but I do remember the first time I had a blackout. Somehow, looking back over my life, I seem to be able to remember more things about growing up as a boy than I can most things as a man. I seem to be able to remember with pinpoint accuracy certain things that happened to me when I was a kid, and I remember I was about 13 years old, a friend of mine, Johnny, and I, we had some money in our pockets from hustling uh, newspapers in the saloons the night before. And I went up to 97th Street between Lexington and Park Avenue. And it was a whole vacant building. And I went in the back and it was a camp of winos. They were all passed out. These guys were the the soldiers and the Marines and the uh, the merchant seamen and the sailors from the Second World War. They were all winos. They were all passed out. And I gave one guy a shake. I gave him the high sign. He came out. And I gave him enough money to go make the run. To get three bottles of Sneaky Pete. Five star Muscatel. Thing was about maybe 30, 31 cents a pint. 27 cents. <laughs> and he made the run. And he came back and he got his pint. And he shuffled back into the building. And Johnny and I went behind the building to the vacant lot. I cracked my pint. Johnny cracked his pint. We started drinking. The, the wine were laughing and giggling. And the body punching with each other. We knocked off the two pints. I remember walking up to dig this wine a while to make the run again to get us three more pints. And I was walking up and I'm bumping in the people and I'm pushing them aside and I'm pushing them this way. It was my first experience with beer muscles. (laughs) I was about this high and already I'm pushing the people aside. And he made the run and I remember putting that crack in that second pint. It was about two o'clock in the afternoon. I can remember putting that pint to my mouth like I'm looking at this microphone. And the next day, I knew I'd come out of a blackout. My mother had my head in the, over the kitchen tubs. I was throwing up all this wine into the tubs. My two brothers were leaning over. They were punching the hell out of me, screaming at me, <laughs> where had I been all day? Because the neighbor came in and told my mother, her son, Brian, is drunk. He's staggering all over the street. My mother was out and the family was out. The neighbors were out. And he scoured the whole neighborhood. And they didn't <clears throat> find me till 11 o'clock at night. And I just couldn't explain I just couldn't explain where I had been. I mean, one minute it was two o'clock in the afternoon, next minute here it was eleven o'clock at night, and I just didn't know. And there was something exciting about this. There was something exciting about this 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 blackout. I mean, it was. uh, I mean, one minute you're there, and next minute, bam, you're into the new dimension, and you're fighting the gods. And there was something manly about it, you know. And a couple of days later, I'm walking up the block, and one of the saloon owners, he come walking down, and I stopped him. And I started talking to him about what had happened to me. And I remember he's looking down at me, and he had a big smile on his face, and he had his hands in his hips, and he's rocking back and forth with this smile. And when I was finished, he turned around, he said to me, kid, were you drinking? I said, yeah, yeah, I was drinking. He said, were you drunk? I said, yeah, yeah, I was drunk. And he just leaned back and shrugged. He didn't say anything. He just shrugged. He tossed my hair, walked around. He kept walking. It seems like I had been born and raised with this alcoholic shrug. I'd seen it all my life. I go in a bar, I wouldn't be a soul in a bar. I say, "Where the hell is everybody?" They say, "Out of out looking for Joe's car. He doesn't know where he parked it last night." They'd be going up and down looking for the car. And somebody say, "Was Joe drunk last night?" And they say, "Yeah." Was Joe drinking last night? And they say, "Yeah." They just shrugged. Never said nothing. Went about their business. I'd walk in the saloon. They say Mary's on the phone. She's hysterical. She doesn't know where she left the kids. She's going crazy. And somebody would say, "Is Mary drinking?" They say, "Yeah." They say, Is "She drunk?" They say, "Yeah." They just shrugged. Never said nothing. Just shrugged. Now, when I was fourteen, you had to be sixteen to get in the pool room, and that's where all the action. That's where all the big guys hung out. So I broke into the church rectory, I robbed a whole pair of baptismal papers along with the church seal. I forged I forged my papers, making myself 16. I sold off the rest. And at 16, you had to be 18 to get your Siemens papers without your parents' consent. So using my phony papers, I got my Siemens papers. And at 17, I ran away and I went to sea. And no matter where I traveled in the world, the shrug followed me. <laughs> I mean, it was like some kind of international voodoo. I mean, like juju. No matter where I was, it was there. But I remember my first trip, I was in Singapore in a nightclub, and I got into a fight, and I got pretty bad beat up and pretty bad cut up. And the uh, the uh, the cops came, and they, they took me to the hospital where they stitched me up, and then they literally threw me in a hole for three days. And they had me in the hole for three days. And in those days, Singapore was still the British Crown Colony, and when he took me out of the docket, when he took me out of the hole, the hair was wild and matted with sw- with with blood, and half of the head was shaved like a mohawk, and I looked like one of these wrestlers or one of these punk rockers, and the, the face was all black and blue, and the stitches were stuck to to the. Sh- I was a mess, and they put me in the docket. And sitting up there was the American, uh, was the uh, the British magistrate, and he had a big white curly wig on a long, black, flowing robe, and representing me was the American consulate. And I was standing there in a the docket, and I remember the magistrate leaning over saying to the American consulate, he says, was that bloke drinking? <laughs> and the American consulate leaned over to me, he says, were you drinking? And I leaned over and looked at the American consulate, eyeball to eyeball, one American to another. And I said, was I drinking? I said, of course I was drinking. <laughs> You don't think I look like this sober, do you? I said, what the hell kind of an American do you think I am anyway? I said, of course I was drinking. They were drinking. We're all drunk. He looked up and he said, yes, your magistrate. The bloke was drinking. And the judge went like this here. The American counselor went like that. The captain went like that. I went like that. And ladies and gentlemen, that's my story in a nutshell.
1: It was just one
0: shrug after another. That's where alcohol took me. It reduced me and my life to a human shrug. They say the ship sailed for Panama last night. Was Brian aboard? The ship came back from Panama. Was Brian aboard? Did Brian go home last night? Is Brian coming out today? Does Brian have to do time? Does Brian have any money left? Whatever happened to that nice girl Brian was going with?
1: Where the hell is Brian? And that's it,
0: ladies and gentlemen. Now, 1969, in 1969, I was really on a drunk, a bad drunk, and I come out of a blackout and I had a phone. I'm weaving back and forth, and I'm listening to this voice on the phone. And the voice is saying, take it easy, Brian, take it easy. Give us your address, and I'll send a couple of men over to talk to you. I couldn't quite figure out who this guy was and wanted to send a couple of men over to talk to me. So I kept drawing words out, hoping maybe he could, you know, he'd bite me, he'd fill in. I could fill in the sentences to figure out who the guy was. And he kept saying, take it easy, Brian. Give us your address, I'll send a couple of men over to talk to you. Finally, I said, what do you mean send a couple of men over to talk to me? I said, who the hell are you anyway? He says, I'm um, so-and-so from intergroup. Now, if you've never heard the word intergroup before, you have to admit it sounds like some kind of communist word.
1: I said, intergroup?
0: I said, what the hell are you talking about? I said, who the hell are you? He says, I'm so-so from Intergroup Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, Intergroup Alcoholics Anonymous? I said, how the hell did you get my number? He said, you just called us up. I said, I call you up. What the hell would I call you up for? He said, take it easy, Brian. Give me your address. I said, you hold it right there, mister. Don't you send anybody around my house starting trouble. You want something, I'll give you a punch in the puss. That's what I'll give you. I hung up the phone. I sat down. The sweat, the sweat started pouring out of me. My mind kept racing back and forth in retrospect, trying to figure out what in God's name did I do this time that Intergroup was looking for me. <laughs> I mean, the only thing I knew about Intergroup was these Second World War movies, you know, like Humphrey Bogart and Errol Flynn and Jimmy Cagney. And in those movies, when an Intergroup was after, it meant one thing. So I shut the the lights out and I sat there in the bed and I listened. I got up and I peeked out the keyhole, thinking maybe I see an Intergroup guy out in the hallway. I went and I I went and I leaned up against the window and I pulled the shades back and I searched out the doorways and the lamppost, thinking maybe I'd see, a, you know, a spy over there looking up at me. In 1970, I was on another drunk, a real w- wicked drunk, a bad drunk, and I come out of a blackout. I'm talking to this guy on the phone again. And he told me where the meeting was, and the meeting was the old Butterfield group in 72nd Street between Lexington and 3rd, on 3rd Avenue. And I went, and the only thing I heard at that meeting was, stay out of one bar, one bar at a time. Now looking back, I'm sure the guy was saying, stay away from one drink, one drink at a time. But I heard, stay away from one bar, one bar at a time. And I walked out and I walked up to 72nd Street and, on the 3rd Avenue, I went from 72nd Street all the way to 93rd Street on 3rd Avenue. And there were bars to the right and saloons and beer gardens and nightclubs. But I was a man on a mission. I walked all the way up. I got up to 93rd Street, one of these bars I drank in. I walked in. I ordered up my usual solving up drink, which was a large club soda with a big twist of lemon. And I'm standing at the bar. And next thing I felt my legs starting to shake in my brain. And boom, I went into a fit. When I come out of the fit, I was in an ambulance with a friend of mine, Jackie, and his big attendant was kneeling atop of me, and he had something in my mouth, and heard the sirens, and I couldn't quite figure out what was going on, who this guy was, what, what, what it was all about, and I panicked, I grabbed the guy, I rolled him over, I got on top of him, I stopped pounding the shit out of him, he screamed to the ambulance driver to stop the ambulance, the ambulance came to a screeching halt, the guy came running around, opened the door, I peeked in to see what the hell is going on, I ran over, I gave him a kick and a push, I hit the ground running and took off like a shot. Jackie ran over, he gave me a kick in the pussy, he hit the ground, he took off after me. I'm running up here, Jackie's running after me. I run down there. He's running after me. I spot a bike go running in the bar. Jackie comes running in the bar, I'm huffing and puffing, he's huffing and puffing. I grabbed him, I said, What the hell happened? God damn it, Jackie. What was all that about? He says, I don't know. He says he says, You come in the bar, he says, you're all right. Next thing you went into some kind of fit. Now the only thing I could attribute that fit to was this intergroup anonymous stuff, you know? I mean, they told me to stay out of one bar, one bar at a time. I walked by all these bars, nothing happened to me. I go in one stinking bar and I woke up in an ambulance. I remember saying to Jackie, Jesus, no wonder these people are anonymous. I mean, they could kill you in broad daylight and never leave a fingerprint. I ordered a drink. I said to Jackie, well, Jackie, I said, that's it for this intergroup anonymous stuff. They had one crack at me. They goddamn near killed me. <laughs> I said, that's it. In 1969, I was on a ship. And we're about five days out of uh, the Suez Canal. Bound. I was on a round the world ship. And we were hitting the Suez and then go up to the Mediterranean, to Naples. And uh, I had booze stashed all over the ship. I was drinking. I was on a drunk. I come off watch, and I was sitting in my forecastle, and all of a sudden the, uh, the, uh, the order came down to batten down the hatches, dog down the portholes, that a storm was coming up. Now somehow I thought the storm was there looking for me. And I'm drinking and the storm hitting, the ship is rocking and rolling. And all of a sudden, I'm getting madder and madder and madder. I figure, well, you're looking for me. Well, you got me. And I got the bottle. I went out in deck. I threw the doorbell. I got out there. I start laughing and singing and peeing against it and throwing punches and laughing again and is slamming me all over the place. And a wave picks me up, slams me up against the housing, breaks my arm. They wanted to take me off in Alexandria, Egypt, and I figure, the hell with it. I'll tough it out for another four days and get to Naples. If you got to get off anyway, get off in Naples. The hell with that. Egypt. (laughs) so they took me off in Naples and they they had me in the hospital for three days and they put me in a body cast one of these big body casts the arm was out like that with a big bar underneath it (laughs) and the agent came and he picked me up in Naples and it was about four or five hours to get out to Rome to the airport, we got there, we are a little early and uh I turned around, I said to him, look, you married? He says, yeah, you got you any kids He says, yeah, I got some kids. I said, look, you don't have to wait for me. I don't need a babysitter. The plane is right there. I'll just sort of get some postcards and write them and send them to New York, let the boys know what's going on. So he left. I'm sitting at the bar and I start writing the cards out and I'm looking. I get a cappuccino. I said, hey, throw a little brandy in a cappuccino, you know. Throw <laughs> a little brandy. I'm... First class, I'm by myself in the plane. I'm drunk as hell when that gangway went down in uh, Kennedy Airport. Man, I come off it like a drunken runaway construction boom. I'm banging into people's tanks. I'm all ducking. I'm banging. I fell in the escalator. The bar jammed it. Sparks are coming out. People are falling on top of me.
1: 1970.
0: I'm on another ship about three days out, out of Seattle, bound for Japan. I'm drinking, got boos stashed all over, robbing the whole, you know, burglarizing the whole. We're robbing everything out of the hole. And uh, the way came down, I buttoned down the hatches and uh, dog down. The, the the storm was coming. And man, I really got peeved off this time. I said, God damn it, man. No matter where I go, this goddamn storm is following me. I said, well, I'm going to settle it once and for all. The storm hit. I got out there. I'm. Laughing and throwing punches and peeing, singing it. A wave picked me up, slammed me up against the housing, shot at the lower part of my back. They had me uh the belly down till I got to Japan where they took me off. They had me in the hospital for sixteen days where they operated on me. The agent comes, he picks me up, now we gotta go all the way from uh, from Yokohama route to Tokyo. We got there a little early. I said to the guy, I said, Look, you married? He says, yeah. I said, you got any kids? He says, yeah. I said, look, I don't need a babysitter. I'm a grown man. The plane is right there. I'll just get some postcards let the boys know what's going on. So I'm sitting there at the bar and I'm looking at it and the is there. I tell the guy, hey, heat up a little sake. Yeah, a little sake. I'm drunk as hell. I passed out in the plane. When I came to, there was a big bucket of blood all over the seat I was hemorrhaging. With a drain, they'd come out. So they got me in the back of the plane and they got my pants down and they're wiping me and they had to bottle one of those old-fashioned Cotexes and backed me with the Coltex. And when the plane got to Anchorage, Alaska, they had to get my, my luggage out to change, to change my clothes. By the time I got to New York, a couple of days later, I'm sitting in the house, I'm saying, man, the hell with this going to see? I said, man, I mean, it seems like every time I go, there's a whole school of angry Moby dicks out there waiting for me. I mean, it's not Captain Ahab they want, they want me. I said, God, I, I don't mind going to sea, but I don't want to die over it, you know. So I went back working in the tunnels. I'm a retired sandhog, and for those of you who don't know what the New York sandhogs—where we're the compressed air workers. We're the miners. We're the ones who build the tunnels and the casings for the bridges. We work underneath the water. I went back working in the tunnel. In about 1971, I was on a real bad drunk. And I was passed out in my apartment. I hear banging at the door, banging at the door. Open up the door, Brian. Open it up. I'll kick it in. And I opened it up, and it was the uh, the union delegate. And he came in, and he said, phew, this place stinks. What the hell are you doing? I said, keep your voice down. you let the whole neighborhood know my business. He went over. He opened up the window, threw the, the blinds back. He said, Jesus, what the hell are you doing? The place was a mess, you know? He said, what, what the hell? Are you? I said, What's the big deal? Like? What are you getting excited about? I'm just having a couple of drinks. He said, a couple of drinks? He said, how long do you think you've been having a couple of drinks? And was something in his tone of voice that I knew this guy was a little mad. And I said, I don't know, because I sort of remember people coming and going. I said, I don't know, maybe a week? He said, you've been on this drunk six weeks. He said, I can't keep covering your job. I'm swapping everybody around trying to cover your job. I was the dynamiter on the job. So he says, when the hell are you coming back to work? And I could see he's mad. I says, well, what's today? He said, Wednesday. I said, alright. I said, I'll be back Monday. He said, Brian, can I tell him you're coming back? I said, you can take book on it. I said, I'll be back Monday. Cause all I knew that all I ever needed, no matter where I was in the world, to come off a of drunk, was about three days, silence, a floor, water, and a toilet. That's all I ever needed. You know the sound. And I go through the whips and the jingles and the shakes and the howling, and the runs and, and the and, You know, Usually I could bail out and get all the badness out in three days. And I did. I got all the badness out in three days. I went back to work Monday uh, at 7 o'clock in the morning. At 9 o'clock they call for the dynamite. I loaded 300 sticks of dynamite on the cage, dropped down 850 feet to tunnel level. And we start moving in. Now when you get into the compression chamber, and you go out on the other side into the compressed stair, all the lights are shut off when the dynamite enters the tunnel for fear that maybe an electric charge may, may hit it and, you know, wipe out the tunnel. And we went out in there loading the 300 sticks of dynamite, and I went into a, into a, a fit. And I'm flopping all around there. They turn around and say, what the hell is going on? He said, it's Brian. Where is he? He's over there. No, no, he's over there. Watch out. You're standing on him. I'm flopping all over, pulling the dynamite, flopping around. So they called out for an ambulance. And they, the ambulance heard that there was dynamite involved. And at that time, there was a lot of... Dynamite being stolen off the construction jobs and a lot of bombing going on in New York. So they called the bomb squad. And by the time they got me out, man, they were there. They had binoculars, baseball bats, flak jackets. They had rifles, machine guns on me. I got off the stretch, I pissed my pants and I'm shaking there, like, And they're all peeved off that they had to call out this armory, you know, for this here drunk. So they claimed I was an epileptic, and they wouldn't allow me to go work with the dynamite or run a motor or uh, work any of the machinery in the tunnel because I was an epileptic, and for fear that maybe I'd send a, you know, wipe out the tunnel. So I had to go to the Lenox Hill Hospital for a whole series of epilepsy tests, and I went. I had all the tests taken, and a couple of days later, I'm sitting outside the neurosurgeon's office. He stepped out, he go, Mr. Mines? I said, Here. Gave me the high sign. I got up, and just before I walked into his office, I stopped, and I took a deep breath. And I walked in. He's shuffling around the charts. He said, well, everything here looks pretty negative, Mr. Mines. I heard the word word negative, and I let my breath out just a little bit. And I said, what do you mean negative, doctor? He said, well, everything here looks pretty good. And I let my breath out just a little bit more. I said, do you mean to say, doctor, I'm not an epileptic? He said, no, nah, you're not an epileptic, you're an alcoholic.
1: I said, yeah,
0: yeah, 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 like he's trying to get off the issue. I said, but I'm not, I'm not an epileptic, right? He said, no, you're an alcoholic. I said, then I didn't have an epileptic fit in the tunnel. He said, no, you had an alcoholic seizure. I said, oh, thank
1: God, thank God. I
0: hugged him. I mean, I couldn't care less about being an alcoholic. What the hell did I care about being an alcoholic? I mean, it's those epileptics. They're the ones that'll get you fired. So I didn't put it in writing. I went back. I saw the safety of the engineer in the job, and I threw it on the job. I threw it on the desk. I said, here, I'm an alky, not a neppy. Here it is right here. Alcoholic. So the guy said, oh, so you're an alcoholic. And I go and I said, yeah. He said, so am I. I said, no kidding. He says, yeah. He says, you're going back to work? I said, yeah. He said, you want a drink? I said, sure. We closed the door. He pulled out a bottle. We saw something on a bottle. They called for the dynamite. They get down the cage, dropping down the tunnel level, and life was good. God, I mean, life was good. Here I had my job. I was locked in. They couldn't fire me. I'm only an alky. I just found a newfound friend with a bottle tucked away. Life was good. Well, anyway, this friend of mine, Joe, Now, Joe and I were born and raised together, went to sea together, and now here we are working the tunnels together. He had been sober in AA for seven years, and he had been 12-stepping me all these these years, always trying to get me to go to a meeting. And he had heard about the trouble I was in. So he came up to the house, and he said, look, Brian, why don't you come to an AA meeting? And I said, all right. And I agreed, and the only reason I agreed to go is because I couldn't seem to get a handle on these convulsions. I mean, I was convulsing in subway platforms in the middle of the street. Now I'm on a job, and I'm in a lot of trouble. And I agreed to go. And at that meeting, I heard the speaker guarantee that if you don't pick up the first drink, you can't get drunk. He guaranteed it's impossible, impossible to get drunk if you don't pick up the first drink. And as the meeting broke, I made a beeline for the staircase to get out of here. All, everybody stopped, and they started to say to our father, And I spun around, I searched out the crowd, and there was my boy Joe. He had his eyes hooded, holding his two fingers, rocking back and forth in his heels, saying the Our Father. And I said to myself, ah, Joe, what the hell did they do to you, Joe? I mean, here was a man born and raised me, and here he is now rocking to Jesus, and psalm singing with the best of them. Well, we went for coffee afterward. And we're sitting at a table in a restaurant. Everybody from AA came in, they started filling them around the uh around the seats. And I leaned over and I said to Joe, I said, Look, Joe, how long are you in AA? He said, Seven years. I said, Joe, this is just between you and me. Nothing to do with those people over there. I said, Joe, did you understand that guy back there, the guy that was standing up, the guy that said it's impossible to get drunk if you don't pick up the first drink? Did you understand that? Joe said, Sure, yeah. Yeah, you know, I understand it. I said, Joe, I'm your buddy. Stop and dig deep. deep down in the caverns of your bowels, Joe. Do you really understand what that man is saying? He said, sure, I know. What the hell are you trying to say? I said, Joe, what I'm trying to say, man, this is my first meeting, and I understand it. Can't you see, man, you're being bullshitted. You're throwing good money in the basket full of happy horseshit, Joe. Of course you can't get drunk if you don't pick up the first drink. That's like me guaranteeing you, if you don't leave the house tomorrow, you won't get run over by a train. It's happy horseshit, Joe. He said, look, Brian, please, please, here's the meeting book. Take the meeting book. Try 90 days, 90 meetings. And I slid the meeting book back to him. I said, look, Joe, please, maybe you don't mind sitting there in the front row, humped over, squinting up at the speaker, slurping your lip for sobriety like some kind of AA Quasimodo. And I said, Joe, that isn't my idea what the hell AA is all about. What happened to your pride, Joe? And Joe said, look, mine, please, why don't you try 90 days? night? I said, Joe, I'm telling you, as a friend, you keep hanging around with those people over there and you're going to be here for another seven years.
1: <laughs>
0: Just then... Just then, the bells from the church started ringing, I broke out laughing. I said, Joe, you better get back there. Somebody got your job.
1: <laughs>
0: now, that was the fall of 71. <clears throat> the fall of Now, I went to all the holidays. All the holidays. Never picked up a drink. Christmas, Christmas, New Year's. Never picked up a drink. Back in the bars, wheeling and dealing with the women. All kind of money, you know. I mean, the happy days were here again. Now, I live in 86th Street. Between 3rd and 2nd Avenue at that time. I'm born and raised around there. And that's where the St. Patrick's Day Parade breaks up. And generations of generations of people come up there. I mean, from both sides of the street, 3rd Avenue, all the way to Park Avenue, both sides. I know everybody. And uh, my nieces came in. I remember walking up toward the parade. I had a, a camel head coat on, big green tie a Russian on with sprigs of the shamrocks. My nieces had one arm or one the other, and everybody's yelling at me, and I'm waving to everybody, and I got up to where my crowd is drinking. I'm yelling at the marchers going by, and they're saluting me. And uh, they're passing a the bottle around, and I hadn't drank in about four months. And a bottle came to me. I pulled the plug. I took a swig, and that, that first drink this time put me in the grip of the grape for two weeks. That... First drink, but the fears were so great that for two weeks, I was locked up in my apartment. For two weeks, I was totally isolated. I had the doors locked, the windows locked, the shades drawn, the phone off the hook. The only phone call I made was a liquor store across the street. And for two weeks, I was totally isolated. And only an alcoholic would understand I loved it. God, I loved it. There was no judgment on me. The only friends and enemies I had was the furniture. I would stand there in the middle of the moon, my head thrown up, my shoulders squared away, and the wind would gently tussle my hair. And my eyes squinting with mirth would search out the horizon, my nostrils flaring with excitement, my teeth bared with lust, my chest slowly heaving, and my hands opening and closing with anticipation. I would stand there truly a man, a man of destiny, a man amongst men, all things to women. Jack and Nasus be on the ground with the arms around my and my legs saying, I love you Brian, please, take the money, take the money. And, I, and I'd, and i throw my head back and I'd laugh and I'd say, money? You can't buy a man like me with money and I'd pick her up and I'd throw her out the door. Next minute to be banging at the door, I'd open up and be Sophia Lauren. She said, I heard about you Brian, just once, just once. And I'd slam the door and I'd yell through the door, why don't you goddamn women leave me alone? Can't you see I'm only human? Leave me alone, God damn it. Or I'd be standing in the middle of the room huffing and puffing, huffing and puffing because I had just knocked out Muhammad Ali for the heavyweight championship of the world. And I would always knock him out March 16th so they would beg me to lead the St. Patrick's Day parade. And lead it I wouldn't. I could see myself making that wide turn the home stretch on 86th Street. 86th, 5th Avenue, and the Major Dome would be standing there with the stick in the air, and right when the champion of the world, Brian, the champ, when he was in place, he'd bring the stick down, and all of a sudden the pipes and the fiddles and the drums and the screaming and the yelling, and the cops would have their arms locked trying to hold back the surging crowd of women, and they'd all be yelling, there's Brian, my god, there's the champ, there's Brian. <laughs> and every now and then I'd hear a cop say, what a man, what a man! <laughs> I'd be standing in the middle of the room, I'd be holding this bottle up, I'd be holding a bottle up, weaving back and forth, and these big tears of love and gratitude would be pouring down my cheeks, and the hair would be wild and matted from the drunk, and big bubbly snots coming out of my nose, and red grimacing mouth, and everything I drank and puked would be all over the shirt, and barely hanging out my hips, would be these warm, wrinkled, fateful, farty pair of shorts. And my, t- my toes caked with black dried smelling sweat and I'd be weaving back and forth and the tears of love would be coming down my cheeks because it was the third year in a row I had won the Academy Award.
1: <laughs>
0: well anyway, anyway, April Fool's Day, April 1st, 1972, Intergroup finally came and got me. <laughs> And they carted me off to a detox. <laughs> and I don't ever want to forget that. They were taking me down the drunk section. And the nurse had one arm. My brother-in-law had the other arm. And there was the hair wild and matted from that drunk. And the two-week growth and a vomity dribbly t-shirt and these pee-stained pair of pants with the fly broken, half open, half closed. So I never needed a belt. You just pull them off, kick them in the corner, or you pick them up and pull them on. And naturally those warm, wrinkled, faithful, farty pair of shorts.
1: I mean, they went
0: with me from the first drink. If I staggered down the street, they staggered. If I fell in the gutter, they fell in the gutter. If I got locked up for the weekend, they got locked up for the weekend. And mark my words, ladies and gentlemen, one day shorts like those who will be holding their own meetings, believe me. <laughs> and God knows they deserve them. <laughs> and as they were taking me down, the men's lounge was here and the nurses' uh, station was here. As I got close, I saw this guy through the corner of my eyes step out of the men's lounge. And he saw the three of us coming down, and he stepped back in, I could hear him say, hey guys, come out, look at this guy, real wolf man. Take a look at this guy. And, they, and the guys come out and they start laughing. And they say, don't touch him, they You get locked, you're up. Don't touch him. Your fingers are about right off. They're all laughing. Now, this is the first time in my life, ladies and gentlemen, that man or woman ever laughed at me. And I couldn't do anything about it. I remember standing there, my soul-sickening voice, this voice that had tortured me ever since I was a child, kept digging into me, saying, look at them laughing, look at them laughing at you. You've been nothing but a disgrace all your life. Can't you do anything right? For once in your life, try to be a man. For once in your life, try to do something. Get your head up. Don't let these bastards laugh at you. And I kept trying to get my head up, but it seems like somebody used a machete and cut up all my neck muscles and my back muscles. I just couldn't get my head up. And if there's one thing at that at that moment I wish I could have done, and that was to grab myself by the head of the hair, yank my face up, and spit right into it. That's how I felt about myself was the second day over my 38th birthday, I was physically banked up, mentally banked up, spiritually banked up, financially banked up, and sexually banked up. I see now in sobriety, I've been slipping in and out of intimacy since I was about 28 years old. And it was tough sexually faking it. I was a sandhog and a merchant seaman. I was a bartender. and I'd be working the bar and the guys would be sitting there and they'd be talking about the girls. And this guy took the girl home last night and he made love two or three times. And this guy here took the girl home. He made love two or three times and the guy over there, he took the girl home and he made love two or three times. Well I see now in sobriety, ladies and gentlemen, that if these guys were taking these girls home making love two or three times a night, one thing is for sure they didn't drink what I was drinking, that's for sure.
1: <laughs>
0: you don't drink that shit and go home and make love two or three times. You go home and fall out of the bed two or three times.
1: <laughs>
0: now, I don't wanna believe it. I don't wanna believe it the uh the sex thing. I, 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 I'm just throwing it out there because maybe maybe there's some guy here that kind of knows what I'm talking about.
1: As for the women, they know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and they suggest
0: that 90 days, 90 meetings, get a meeting, get a sponsor, get a meeting book, Set up front. 90 days, 90 meetings, get a sponsor, get a meeting book, sit up front. And I came out and had my sponsor Joe waiting for me. I got the meeting book and I'd sit up front. I'd sit there and I had my arms crossed across my chest, my feet crossed straight in front of me. And you look straight ahead. You see, you a quarter after nine or a quarter to three. You look straight ahead. Don't make eye contact. You know, if you make eye contact, you might just have to nod. You know? And God forbid if you, you know, God forbid if you make eye contact and smile. That means they're winning. You know? So you look straight ahead. And after the meeting, I would buttonhole one of these old-timers. I'd get them aside. And I'd say, look, just between you and me. Nothing to do with these people over there. I said, where the hell did you get this 90 days, 90 meetings concept? Where did you get 90 days, 90 meetings? I mean, why not 70 days and 70 meetings? Or 65 days and 80 meetings? Why 90 meetings and 90 days? And none of the old-timers knew. Not only didn't they know, but they couldn't care less. They say, look, Brian, I don't know about 90 days, 90 meetings. You know, we just don't drink one day at a time. We don't pick up that first drink one day at a time. But talking to you, maybe 90 days, 90 meetings is not bad. You know, maybe get some of the fumes out of you. But that wasn't good enough. I had to find out where did they get 90 days, 90 meetings, because I had no intentions of making the same mistake twice. Now I remember when I was in school, I was always being beaten and punished and kept after school over these mystical esoteric numbers. I remember there was the twelve apostles and the ten commandments, the twelve lost tribes of Israel, the seven deadly sins and the eight wonders of the ancient world and the four, the four, the nine planets and the seven seas and the four winds and Moses was in the desert for forty years and Columbus was on the Atlantic for forty days, forty nights and now me 90 days, 90
1: meetings. (laughs) Well, it
0: didn't take me long to figure it out, and I finally came to the conclusion that you have to be here 90 days, 90 meetings, just to understand what the hell they're talking about. (laughs) Because they're very sophisticated way of speaking at these meetings. The topic would be, you see, when you made a decision not to make a decision, you made a decision. They go, oh my god, what a topic. You'll see, at the very second of not taking the action, that's when you took the action. They go, oh my God, circuit speaker, circuit speaker. (laughs)
1: The one that got
0: me was, you see, you can't keep it unless you give it away. In fact, you have to give it away to keep it. And the more you give, the more you get. And I lean over and I say to Joe,
1: Joe, what the hell are they giving away? (laughs) They don't work. Well
0: are all on a point on welfare Joe ever even on alimony, can't you see? He said, see what? I said, can't you see we're being bullshit, man? Where Trump go he said, My God, are you still on that kick? He get his cork and his cigarette. I see him work his way to sit somewhere else. I said to myself, get ahead and run. Run you stinking AAS kisser.
1: <laughs> I mean that's all they
0: seem to the do around here mean I'd stay away from the drink, come to meetings, and kiss ass.
1: <laughs> i say,
0: let me tell you, Joey, boy, it would be a cold wind blow to a healthy day you get a man like me to bend over and kiss
1: ass. <laughs> <laughs> and I would turn around,
0: I'd look at the women. Oh, God, my heart would just go out to the women. Beautiful women, all ages, all size, I mean, God, I me, mean, if anybody got the short end of the stick, it was the women. You know, it seems like their whole life now revolved around needle pointing.
1: I mean, I
0: see them there, Pearl One, Drop Two, identify with the speaker. Pearl One, Drop Two. And every now and then I'd hear a, a big burst of oohing and aahing from the back of the room. And I knew they had just discovered a new floral pattern.
1: <laughs> and they would
0: purl and just keep purling and identifying until telling menopause. And then right on to a death. I said, ah, Joe, look at them. I said, Joe, you can just take a look at them and see. They never did anything, Joe. They never did anything. And the pity of it all is, Joe, they never will do anything now. Their sponsors will see they
1: die. <laughs> In fact, like
0: the first 90 days, I kept running into the same cluster of speakers. And I, I, I nicknamed the speakers. There was easy, does it Liz, first things first, Marty, one day at a time, George, you know. I had the nicknames for them. And they introduced the speaker. And he gets up, and his name is Charlie. And Charlie stands up there, and he says, I picked up a drink, I fell on a flight of stands, and I surrendered. And they all started to applaud, and hug him, and kiss him, get his autograph, and invite him to parties. I sat there stunned. He picked up a drink, fell on the floor, and started to mumble. Man, I fell off gangways, bostons, guys. Never in a million years would I ever tell a shit story like that in public. I mean, he stood up there and told it right in front of the girls.
1: I said, man, this
0: guy, will never get a girlfriend with a story like that.
1: <laughs> He'd be better off saying
0: he fell up the stairs.
1: <laughs>
0: I nicknamed him Staircase Charlie.
1: <laughs> About
0: a week later, they introduced Staircase Charlie again. I said, oh, there's Staircase. And I sat up front and I zeroed in on every word that this man had to say because it was important to me to find out what kind of a staircase it was that made him surrender. <laughs> now, maybe he's going to say he picked up a drink and he fell down a four-story spiral staircase. Well, all right, got to go along with that one.
1: <laughs> or
0: maybe he's going to say he picked up a drink and he went five stories between the banisters. you got to go along with that one. But the way Charlie looked and the way he was dressed and the way he talked, in my heart I knew this guy was strictly a two-step foyer job. <laughs> Charlie went into a story. He said, I picked up a drink. that fell on the flight of stairs and I surrendered. They all started to applaud him, kiss him, get him to it. I said, why don't this guy tell a real story? Why don't he, he was drinking all day. The guy was drunk. Why don't he tell him that? You see, they kept telling me, Brian, keep bringing the body. Keep bringing the body. Sooner later, the head will follow. Here it was, a week later, I heard the same story. But this time, I heard it just a little bit different. And they introduced Charlie about a week later. Now, this is the third time within a month I'm listening to this guy. I knew a story by heart.
1: And I'm sitting there,
0: and as Charlie went into a story, as he got close to picking up that first drink, I felt my stomach tighten up. I said, uh-oh. Watch that drink, Charlie. Watch the drink. And he got close, and I said, Charlie, can't you see what you're doing? Watch the drink, Charlie. And Charlie said, and I picked up a drink, and I said, oh, well, grease the banisters. There goes Charlie." Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know how it happened, but it was the first time in my life I understood the first drink. I know once Charlie picked up the drink, no way in hell could he beat the staircase. I I just know it. I don't know how. And I kept coming to the meetings, and I kept coming to the meetings, and I stayed away from the closed meetings, and I claimed... And the and the, uh, the step meetings and the closed discussion because of the concept of God. I walked away from the religion that I was born and raised in at 14 and nobody, especially Yay, was going to start ramming God down my throat. But I happened to be at a meeting where they went into the concept of God. And one said it was this, another said it was this, another said it was that. And I remember this young man raising his hand and he's saying the way he had heard God was G-O-D, good or resurrection. G-O-D, good orderly direction. Ladies and gentlemen, speaking only for myself. When I heard that good orderly direction, it seems like my chest blew open. And centuries of venom and stinking, and resentment poured out. Now here was a God that I could understand was good orderly direction. As far as I was concerned, that's what God was supposed to been all along, was good orderly direction. But where I came from and how I was raised, I just couldn't buy it. But I remember sitting there and relaxing in my seat. And I just leaned back and I'm looking at the speaker, behind the speaker, it had the slogans: First things first, keep it simple, let go and let God. And the way I read it was first things first, keep it simple, let go and let good orderly direction. And I literally turned my will and my life over to care of good orderly direction, which was you, AA. And the only thing you were asking of me was to try to stay away from the drink, try to do the best I can, try to get to a meeting. And everything in my life became good, orderly direction. It wasn't so much that it was the concept of God, ladies and gentlemen. Because they told me, Brian, don't you ever worry about God. You'll pick up a drink and won't be sending God to the detox. It's you. It's you in that first drink. The worry that hooked me, ladies and gentlemen, was that word right direction. All my life I have been looking for some type of direction. Just please show me. Please show me I can do it. All of my life I have been trying to be a man. All my life, I was shining my shoes, trying to put my best foot forward. I was always washing my face, combing my hair, trying to make that first good, long-lasting impression. I was always trying to get a job. I was always paying the bills. There's that saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Ladies and gentlemen, that could have been my epitaph. I drank with the best of intentions. I was raised a decent man. I always tried to do what I thought right, ladies and gentlemen. I was always an alcoholic. I was always picking up a drink. And I was always and always and always. And here I am sitting in a room full of alcoholics offering me good all the direction of my life. Now I may have been everybody's drunk, but I assure you, I was never anybody's fool. You're not looking at some jerk when you look at me. I knew right then and there if I didn't make it with you as an alcoholic, I was not going to make it as a human being. All I ever wanted. I was told since I was a kid, boy, Brian has a good head of the owner, you use it. You know? I heard woman after woman tell me, Brian, I love you. God, I love you. I, I just can't stay with you. I can't take you drinking. I heard you, Brian, you're a good worker. Right? Man, you're good, but I gotta let you go. Can't put up with you drinking. Here I was now in a room full of alcohols awfully good all the directions of my life. Everything became good all the direction of my life. Good, better, and different. I see a kid fall in the street, and I say to myself, as long as a kid learns from it, it's in the right direction. Don't pick up a drink. Try to come to meetings. Try to do the best that I can. And I was about a year sober. I was still working with the dynamite for to midnight. And I would get up around 11 o'clock in the morning, and I'd go to a restaurant and have something to eat. And then there was this, outside of a nightclub there in 86th Street, <clears throat> there was Bonnie Googles, and there was this bench. And I would sit there and I'd have a cigarette and a couple of cigarettes and a couple of cups of coffee before I made my way to work. And this particular day, I'm looking down on, and here comes this lady with this little little baby, little baby girl. And she looked like a little Shirley Temple, with little tussles and little dimple knees. And she's sucking a lollipop and she spots me. And she comes running up and she leaps right up on my lap. And she starts laughing and giggling, pushing the lollipop at me. I got a coffee in my hand, I got a cigarette, I'm looking at this kid, and the kid is pushing a lollipop, and the mother comes up and she says to me, she wants you to lick the lollipop. So I took the lollipop, I put it in my mouth, I rolled my eyes, made a big sucking sound, the kid is happy, took it out, she popped it in the mouth, jumped off my knee, and started skipping up the street. And the mother looked at me, and I nodded, and I looked at the mother, and I nodded at the mother. And I'm watching the two of them as they're walking away, and all of a sudden this tremendous feeling of love, this tremendous knowing feeling of God overcame me.
1: This tremendous,
0: it nearly picked me off the bench. <clears throat> and I, could, I I had never experienced this, this type of feeling before. And I kept saying to myself, this is good orderly direction. This is good orderly direction. Because everything that I heard since I heard good orderly direction was good orderly direction. But I heard myself saying to me, to myself, not nah, Ryan, this is not good orderly direction. This is the God of the rooms. This is the God of sobriety. This is the God they've been talking about, and I couldn't believe. I mean, who would believe me sitting there with God, with a container of coffee in one hand, a cigarette in the other, and the taste of a lo- Charles Lollipop in God? And I was just overwhelmed, and I didn't know what to say. And I said, "God, God bless you, God." Like I went over his head to his boss or something. I <laughs> what the hell do I know about God? You know, I'm just waiting to go to work. And I was about four years sober. And I got a phone call from uh, from San Francisco. From the Seaman Junior. That they were taking a bicentennial ship out. Out of Beth, Maine. And they're going to crew up with a New York crew. Would I like to be part of the crew? Now I hadn't sailed in four years since they flew me home from Tokyo. And I agreed. And they said, all right go get the inoculations, go sign on, we'll be flying the crew up in about a week, uh, two weeks time. And about a week before I was to leave, a friend of mine, Roy, was on the drunk, and Ronnie, his, his sponsor, went to pick him up, and when he got there, whatever happened, he opened the window and he dove out 27 stories, and it was a mess when he got there, the fire engines were there, and the, uh, he had a wife and five kids, it was a mess. And he was half Jewish and half Irish Catholic. And the uh, the mother flew in from uh, San Francisco, and they had the body cremated. And they, they were fighting and arguing over the ashes. Uh, there was a lot of finger pointing going on. And Roy had gone to sea when he was a kid. So I got together with his sponsor, and I got his mother, and I got his wife. We sat down, and I said, why not give me the ashes? And I'm leaving in a week, and I'll bury him at sea. Give me a see his burial. And that was the only thing he agreed. I remember uh, Ronnie went and picked up the ashes. He gave me the ashes. The captain was notified there's going to be a burial at sea. And uh, on the way to Panama, the Shakedown Cruise on the way to Panama, I ran into the captain. He said, you're the guy with with the friend that's going to have the burial? I said, yeah. He says, well, when do you want to hold it? I said, it's up to you, captain. Yeah, yeah. Your ship? He says, all right. He says, uh, bring the death certificate up and we'll register it in the logbook. I said, I don't have any debt certificate. He said, well, you need one. This is an official burial. He said, I'll tell you what, we get to Panama. You call up his wife. I have all the necessary papers sent to San Francisco and we'll bury him in the Pacific. I said, all right. And I did. We sailed from San Francisco. I ran into the captain again. He said, well, when would you like to have? I said, captain, it's up to you. It's your ship. He said, no, no, it's your friend. He says, uh, when won, would you like to hold it? I said, Captain, if it's possible, I'd like to bury him on the international bait line. If it's okay with you, Captain, I want to bury my friend on the international bait line. And he says, all right, when we get there, we'll hold a service. And it was important to me, ladies and gentlemen, because my way of thinking, if there's any one true internationalist, if there's one true internationalist, it's the alcohol. God, we have been around since the beginning of time in every nook and cranny they have us in parchment. They have stories about us in hieroglyphics and cut in stone. I mean, we go back. We go back to the beginning of time. Where is all this fermentation? That's how old we are. I mean, first there was the Ice Man and the Neanderthal Man, and right alongside of them was us, the drunken man. I mean, we've been right there all along. And I think if anybody should be buried on the international dateline, it's us. So anyway, we got to the International Dateline, and now all the passengers came out. You could feel the ship shuddering as it's slowing down for the service. Black smoke bulging out of the stack, and all the people came out, and they they had the uh, I had the plank with the ashes and the uh, the American flag on top of it. And before I left San Francisco, I got five long stem uh, red roses, one for each one of his kids, and I got a a yellow rose for the wife. And I stapled it to that plastic uh, serenity card that we have to make a wreath. And that was on top of the uh, the American flag. And the captain had agreed to close the service with the Our Father. And ladies and gentlemen, it was a gorgeous night. It was a night. The sky was just a cathedral of color. I mean, God just pulled out all the plugs. It was a cathedral. The the, the sea was like, like glass. Just like glass. It, I mean, and uh, they had the service and he picked it up the ashes went in the flag went and the uh the flowers went after it and you could hear three mighty blasts from the whistle saluting the departed brother and all of a sudden they broke out the booze and the out, and the passengers and the crew they all start drinking and smoking and I wandered back to the back to the after the ship and there's the wake and way in the distance I could see the flowers spinning and turning in the And I looked around and where I was and I mean it's I just couldn't believe it. Here I was in the international late line sober. I'd been sailing been around the world sixteen times later, not counting all the other ports in the world, and here I was standing sober, burying a friend of mine who had picked up the first drink. Now I don't know what went through his head when he drove out that window, but here he was being buried with dignity and grace. Dignity and grace by you and me. By AA. Now that I mean, freely give, freely receive. And here we are. And I had photographs taken, and when I got, and I went up and I got the longitude and the latitude line, when we got this to, to Japan. I mailed it back to the wife. So any day she can go to the calendar, uh, to the uh, map, and trace it out and say, "Here's where my husband was buried." And the kids would turn around and say, "Here's where my father was buried." And in time, the grandchildren would turn around and say, "Here's where my grandfather," and say it with dignity. And say it with pride. Freely given, freely received from us. And the ship sailed on. I made meetings all over all over the world. Anywhere I could make them, I made them. And believe me, on the Far East, there was very, very little meeting. But I had registered at GSO as an internationalist before I left. And the internationalists, they're people who travel. They're people who travel all over the world. And you get the meeting book. So no matter where you are, you you can pick up a meeting. And they gave me the loaner's list. And these are people away in some nook and cranny in a lighthouse or you, you don't know where they are. Well on that list was this missionary, this priest, way on the hills of Taiwan. And I saw the to correspondent to because that was one of the ports at Poland. And he, he wrote me. he said, Brian, is it was at all possible if you can get up to see me, I'd like to take my fourth or fifth step with you. He was sober five years. But he had never Spoken to another human being. It was all done through letters from GSO and and tapes that they had mailed them. And this one particular day, the ship was there long enough. But I rented out a car. I got a guy to drive her. We went clip and clap over the hills and rice paddies. And I finally found this guy in a missionary way in the back hills of Taiwan. <clears throat> and I took the footstep with him. And this guy would talk to me. He'd go uh, talk in English. And next minute, man, he'd go into long tangents of Chinese. And he'd weave in and out. And he's going into Chinese. And I'm looking at what he's saying to me and what's written. And and I I realized how important it was and how fortunate I had been to have sobered up with a sponsor here in New York. Face to face. Because what this man was telling me, what he had written down, was two entirely different things. It's different when you talk face to face. And I realized how blessed how lucky I had been to have sobered up in the United States, you know, in meetings. But I realized how blessed he was to have sobered up with the likes of me looking him up and people in GSO writing him and other people corresponding with him. I realized how blessed he was. And what I learned from that, ladies and gentlemen, is don't ever be afraid to get out there. Don't ever be afraid to get out there and travel the world. You know, don't ever be worried about... uh, if AA is there. You know, if you get to a if you get to a country or if you get to a town or a port and AA isn't there when you get there, then AA is there when you got there. Because you're AA and I and there's no big deal to any of this. It's just a matter of putting out your hand to the suffering alcoholic at the right time. And I came back and with the help of the people in the program, I registered at Fordham University. I went five and a half years. I was working the tunnels days and going to school at night. took me five and a half years. In 1982, I graduated with a degree, a B.A. in fine art, something I'd always been interested in. And I did a lot of things that I'm proud of, ladies and gentlemen, a lot of things I'm ashamed of. And the one thing that I was the proudest of to this day was the one thing I had always been ashamed, the deepest ashamed of, and that's the fact that I couldn't drive. I'm talking folded, folded. You know, I just couldn't drive. And I was always ashamed of the fact that I couldn't drive. And I was running around with a young lady in the program. One Saturday, she knocked at the door. I came in. She, oh, she came in. She said, put your shoes on. I'm going to register you with driving school.
1: I said, ah, don't,
0: don't stop torturing me with that. Leave me alone for crying out." She said, put your shoe on. You're going to go. And she literally took me by the hand. Register me in the Yorkville Driving Academy. And every day before I go to work, the guy be there with the big yellow car. i get in to take the lesson. When I got to the job, the guys could tell that if I had to driver lessons, I'd come in like the Michelin man.
1: Oh, God, I could
0: only move from all the tension and the fear.
1: <laughs>
0: and guys in New York don't have cars, so the, the, the friends and members from Brooklyn and Queens would come in. They taught me how to go through the tunnel and how to go over the bridge and that and the day came for me to take the test, and I remember the guy was waiting there for the car, and I got, and I was, uh, and I went and I took the test, and about six weeks later, I come home, about one o'clock in the morning, and I opened the mailbox, and there was a letter from the motor vehicle, and I opened it up, and I looked, and there was my license, ladies and gentlemen, the tears, the tears, I remember, I was sitting in, in, in the kitchen, I put a towel on my mouth, because I was afraid anybody at one o'clock in the morning would hear me crying, And uh, it was beyond, beyond my wildest dreams, beyond my wildest expectations that here I would be sitting with a driver's license. Never in my life did I ever fantasize that I had a big Cadillac and I picked up these girls in a Cadillac. And I never fantasized that I was a racing car driver. Anything to do with cars, I had nothing to do with
1: them. (laughs) And I had the license for
0: about five months and one day, a Saturday, I don't know why, I got up, and made myself a cup of tea, I went up to Avis, and I rented a car. Now, in the back of my mind, I wanted to make it to this diner, and this diner was out in, in Rockaway, the Ram's Horn. And I knew you had to go over the Queensboro Bridge. You went out the Queens Boulevard, Northern Boulevard. You made the turn, and it took you right into Rockaway. Now, I remember, I was going across the bridge. I'm driving. The truck drivers are coming by that, beeping the horn. move over, you dumb bastard! And I'm hanging there, you know. Finally, finally I, I get to, the, to this here at Ram's Head. And I remember getting out. I was soaking wet. The, the sweat was just pouring out of my shoes. There was three steps to get up into the dining I remember how it was a, a hard time getting my leg up on the step because my pants were wet and stuck to my ass. <laughs>
1: I'm trying
0: to get up. And I remember and I sat, I sat on the stool. And they say, ladies and gentlemen, everybody has 15 minutes of fame. Well, I had three cups of coffee of it. I had never been so proud of myself as I was sitting there soaking wet on that bar. <laughs> I mean, I had never been so proud as I was then. And I remember I got out and I got in the car. I was in the car out and here comes the voice digging into me. And the voice is saying, look at him. Look at him driving in that car. Look at him looking over his shoulder, turning that wheel with one hand. What a man. What a man.
1: And I came back, ladies
0: and gentlemen, I paid Avis, I walked down, I turned the corner, and that was the last time I drove a car.
1: I don't drink, and I don't drive. There's my chauffeur right here,
0: she'll get me out there safe and sound. And ladies and gentlemen, I was, I wonder, I, I, You know, I wish I could stand up here and tell you I finally know what I want to be when I grow up. I mean, I'm 27 years sober, I'm a college graduate, I have a driver's license, and I wish I could tell you I really, really know what I want to be when I grow up. But the fact is, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. And I found out here, in these rooms, ladies and gentlemen, that you really don't have to know who you are. What you have to recognize is who you are not. I am not that young man that the, the FBI took off a ship in Mobile, Alabama for near beating a man to death. I am not that young man that the, uh, the, the FBI took off in New York and stood trial for mutiny. I am not that young man dragging a woman out of the cab by the hair of the head, dragging her back into a bar because I hadn't finished drinking yet. I'm not that young man panhandling on the corner trying to get a few bucks to get in and get a drink. I'm not that young man being shuffled into a detox. No, ladies and gentlemen, thanks to you and this magnificent program, I am not a lot of things today. I am not a lot of things. And somehow by seeing the many things that I am not, I begin to see the many things that I am. And on those rare occasions when I do have the courage and the wisdom to take a hard, long look, I see the many things I can yet become. If I continue staying away from this first thing, if I continue practicing these principles in all my affairs, if I continue reaching out to suffering alcoholics, thanks to you ladies and gentlemen, this magnificent program, slowly but surely I'm becoming the person I drank to be. Slowly but surely I'm seeing and healing and feeling and doing all the things that I drank to do. Slowly but surely I'm becoming me. I was in San Francisco in 1976 on our bicentennial ship and it was Christmas evening. I went ashore and I want to share this message. I'm leaving you with a spiritual experience. I'm going to give you a spiritual experience. I'm going to pass it on. This lady at that meeting made a statement in its spiritual simplicity. She took all of the steps and all of the traditions and Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson and you and me and she reduced Everything to its lowest denominator. Listen to what this woman said. She said, by no means as AA open the gates of heaven and let me in, but they sure open the gates of hell and let me out. You feel that kick? That's it. Thank you very much.